0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to warm it up, start flipping through the pages, maybe do some quick stretches because we're going to be looking at two or three different passages, doing a little flipping back and forth. In our church, if you're new to our church, we practice what we call unapologetic preaching. We don't believe that it's ever appropriate for created beings to apologize to other created beings for what our creator has said. And that every word contained within the word of God, properly understood and applied, will only bring blessing and honor to the Lord and to us as well. So what we've been doing is we've been studying cultural issues. And I've entitled this sermon series, Nation Rebuilders, A Christian Vision for Western Civilization. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to help us to think macro, big picture, to see the big picture not just fight the little skirmishes of life that arise from day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, generation-to-generation, but to think big picture. Until Jesus comes back, what is our task, what is our responsibility to shape culture in a way that is reflective of biblical values? So I want to start with an illustration about war. Most of us have never been on a battlefield. Maybe a few of you have, but most of us haven't. But we've watched some movies, and so we have a little bit of insight, and you'll know that if you've ever seen a battlefield, people out on the battlefield fighting, that that battlefield is filled with very, very brave people who are willing to lay down their lives for the cause of liberty or freedom or justice or to cast off the shackles of slavery But not everybody thinks the same or sees things the same way on a battlefield. There's generally two types of troops on a battlefield. There are the the privates, the corporals, the non-commissioned officers that are out there moving forward, killing the enemy, busting into buildings, trying to advance the troops across the battlefield the guys that are hands-on and trying to win the battle, but then there are also the officers. And the officers, the generals, the colonels, they they have to think a little bit differently than the regular troops. They, They have to be able to see the big picture. They have to have in their mind a clear image of what the battlefield looks like and what the goals and aims are for the whole military apparatus. The man running across the battlefield with a gun, he has one task to take the next position, to eradicate the enemy. But if you're going to be an officer, you have to see the big picture. You have to have a plan. You have to understand the goal, the end game. Well, I think that's an apt illustration of what I'm trying to accomplish through this sermon series. I want you to Take your eyes for a moment off of trucker convoys and frozen bank accounts and tyranny and to see the world from a macro perspective. To ask yourself, okay, we have some battles and skirmishes to fight in the here and now and there are some immediate things we need to pay attention to, but what is our goal as Christians? What is our end game? Is it just to have mandates lifted? No. We want to see the lordship of Jesus Christ acknowledged in all of culture, in education, in medicine, in economic structures, in political structures, and in the church. You might say, well, isn't he already recognized in the church? I don't think so. I think there are many churches across our country that have Christians in it who've surrendered their life to Christ, but they actually don't think Christianly they don't have a Christian worldview. They don't understand the big picture. Well, it's critical that we develop a vision for our civilization as our forebears had. In fact, the reason why we have a civilization like this is because many of our forebears who set up countries like Canada actually had a Christian worldview. They thought Christianly when it came to political structures. They thought Christianly when it came to financial structures. They thought Christianly when it came to marriage. They thought Christianly when, they came, when it came to the family. They weren't all Christians, but they thought Christianly. The Christian worldview was part and parcel of culture. Well, it's no longer the case. It's not a post-Christian culture. It's an anti-Christian culture. So I've been trying to help Our church and myself understand better, what does it mean to live Christianly? And we started off this sermon series last week addressing marriage and establishing a Christian view of marriage. And the reason why I wanted to start there is because marriage is the fountainhead of culture. Without marriage, you don't get children. Without children, you don't have civilization. So we established a Christian view of marriage. The next step now is to talk about the family. So I want to discuss with you a Christian view of the family, and especially as it pertains to raising children. So if you're a parent, and you're going to be a successful Christian parent, you have to think like a military officer. And you have to think like a military officer because at times your children will act like your enemies, and you're going to have to know how to respond to that. But hopefully more often than not, you need to think like a military officer because you're in charge of a small army, whether you have one child or 12. You have a little army. And so often as parents, and my children are a little bit older now, four of them are adults, one of them has a year to go. But so often as parents, we can get focused on a task-driven view of parenting. So I got to change a diaper. I have to pack a lunch. I have to wash some clothes. I have to drive my child to hockey. I have to have a disciplinary talk. We have to go shopping for more groceries or more clothes. We get focused on the tasks, just like the the private out in the battlefield. What do I do next? I got to shoot my gun this way. I got to throw a grenade this way. I got to kick a door in over here. We get focused on the tasks but we lose sight of the goal. And as Christian parents, we cannot lose sight of the goal. So do you, if you're a parent, do you have a clear understanding of what Christian parenting even is? What is the goal of Christian parenting? So we want to help people to think through these kinds of issues. And if we're going to develop a next generation of Christians that think Christianly, well, the task is going to fall on us. Because I can tell you this, the education, the public educational system isn't going to do it for you. And the television set isn't going to do it for you. And the internet isn't going to do it for you. In fact, they will work against Christian values. So we, it's so fundamental, more than any generation in recent history, it's so fundamental that we get it right, that we have a clear understanding of what it means to parent Christianly. Christ must be central to your family. So let's discuss three mandates, three mandates that God has given parents over their children. The first one is to multiply, the second one is to teach, and the third one is to release. So we'll start with the first one in the scriptures, when it comes to parenting, we actually have a mandate as humans to multiply. So in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, as we have this record of God's creation of the world, God says in verse, it says about God in verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, from Genesis chapter 1, we are told to make babies. And it's kind of fun, in all honesty. It's our pleasure and privilege to be able to do that. It's natural, it's normative. It's part of God's creational structures. The design that God has for humanity is that we would multiply. And then second to that, that we would have dominion over the earth and over the rest of living creatures. This is part of our stewardship. Part of our stewardship, meaning our fundamental responsibility, is to create new humans and then pass on our stewardship to them. It's pretty basic stuff. But strangely, it has been forgotten or pushed aside or considered a footnote in Western culture to our identity and our task as human beings. People tend to think about the next degree, the next job opportunity, the next house. Oh, and if we get around to it, maybe maybe we'll have kids. We don't really know yet. And we've lost sight of the fact that this is to to be human, in part, is to multiply and to procreate. Now, Adam and Eve wasted no time. It says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So she understood that ultimately her child, Cain, was from God. This is why we say that our children are a stewardship. You don't own your children. They belong to the Lord. They have been entrusted to you by God. Now, between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 4, when the first baby entered into the world, we know that man fell into sin, and the world is tainted by sin, severely tainted by sin. Think about this. The very first child ever born from a mother on planet Earth murdered his own brother. Arguably the greatest of sins in the the temporal realm that one could commit toward another human being. A greater sin would be blasphemy against God. But the greatest sin you can commit against another human being is to take their life. So we acknowledge that we live in a broken world, a sinful world. Raising children can be difficult. Some of you may raise thieves and murderers and rapists. It sounds terrible. But that's part of... Life in a broken world. But that's not a reason to say, well, then we're not gonna have any more kids. I mean, look at the world around us. It's such a terrible place. We're just we're not gonna have any more kids. The world's too bad. No, the scriptures still frame child raising, rearing as a blessing and a command. Now we understand that there's obviously some justifiable reasons why some may not have children. They may be. There may be some severe medical problems that don't allow them to have children. They may be going to war. The husband and wife are separated for several years. Obviously, if you're single, you shouldn't be able having children. So there's justifiable reasons why some folks don't have children. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But there is something wrong with a healthy Christian couple saying, yeah, we don't want to have kids. We're not even going to bother trying. You're like, well, why? Well, we don't like kids. Or we we like to vacation a lot, or it'll it'll cramp our style, or they're too expensive, or who wants to bring kids into a world like this? Or, Or maybe we'll get around to it. Who knows? It's almost like maybe we'll buy a dog, maybe we won't. Your children aren't your pets. Part of our creation mandate, perhaps you've never heard this, stated this strongly before, but part of our creation mandate, the normative path that humanity walks is for people to grow up, get married, and have children. But from a Western perspective, that notion has largely been lost. This is why we have this atrocity taking place in our culture called abortion. This would have been unheard of, unthinkable to early human beings. To abort your child? Are you kidding me? To consider pregnancy as inconvenient? To make a conscientious decision to destroy your own offspring? That would have been unthinkable. And historically, it's been unthinkable among people who worship the true and living God. But sadly, in an increasing way, we have people in Christian churches across our land thinking, that's fine, it's not really a big deal. I mean, imagine the poor child being raised with a disability, better to abort them. Imagine the child being raised in a single Parent home, better to abort them. Look what's happening in the world around us. Better to abort them. Can you imagine us applying that logic to someone in a grocery store? Going up to them and saying, you know what? You don't look like you have very much money. I'm going to kill you right now. It'll be better for you if you're dead. Or do you have a living mother and father? No, your, your parents died? Well, it's better for me just to kill you right now then. We wouldn't apply that logic to people walking around a grocery store, but somehow we apply that logic to children that are still in the womb. Look back at the text. It says, God blessed, and then the blessing of God is directly connected to multiplying. And we're not talking about mathematics here. We're talking about having children. Children, from a biblical perspective, are considered a blessing from the Lord. It's your privilege to have children. Christians, of course, should be very careful not to be exclusionary toward the childless. If you study the book of Genesis, after God made what we call a seed promise to Abraham, said, I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're going to be as many as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. Said this to Abraham. And then Abraham and his wife had trouble having children. And then Isaac and his wife had trouble having children. And every generation for about four generations has trouble having children. God made a promise and then every generation has fertility issues. But it was through those fertility issues that God strengthened their faith. That God proved himself to be faithful. Then you get into Exodus and you have the opposite problem. There's so many kids running around that Pharaoh starts freaking out and tries to chase them out of Egypt. So we go from infertility to super fertility. There's many examples in scripture where people have fertility issues and God still blesses and God still uses folks that are struggling with the challenges of life to do great things for his honor and glory. So we're not, we're not in any way, shape or form. Please hear me clearly saying if you can't have kids or if you don't have kids, somehow you're an inferior person not in any way, shape, or form. But at the same time, we see children as a blessing and we should have as many as we are able. There's no magic numbers. You shouldn't be bragging if you happen to have more than someone else. I do think in some conservative branches of modern evangelicalism, there's a little bit of a Idle issue for some. It's like, look at how many kids we have. You don't have as many as us. A little bit of pride there, perhaps. We don't want to encourage that. But at the same time, our children are among life's greatest blessings. And as we exponentially multiply our efforts through our children, we can disciple more and more people for Christ. Have you noticed, by the way, that it's generally people that have a Christian worldview or a more conservative, creationally-based worldview that tend to be the ones having the children. you notice that? So it tends to be people like you that have more children than people without a Christian worldview. But one of the critical mistakes that we often make is we're the ones having the kids, and then we turn them over to people that don't have our worldview to educate them and to raise them and to influence them. And then we wonder why so many young people are raised in Christian churches that turn out to be non-Christians. Some of whom become antagonistic towards the things of God. So we have not only a mandate to multiply, but we have a mandate to teach our children. This is critical. This is something that I w- was not clearly taught to me when I was growing up. And I suspect that it wasn't clearly taught to you. That if you're a parent, it is fundamentally, and at the end of the day, your responsibility to educate your children. When I was growing up, we just thought, well, mom and dad fed us, took us to church on Sunday, bought us clothes and took us to the park on Saturday afternoon. And then the rest of the week, the public educational system educates us. We just thought that was normal. It's not normal, folks. It's actually very abnormal. And as we've seen the public educational system continue to fall apart and to teach people so many godless ideologies, it's, it's extra critical for Christian parents to be told, look, you must take the primary responsibility for educating your children. Now, if you're a Christian teaching in the public school system, wonderful. You're a missionary, and I hope you understand that you're a missionary. But it's increasingly become obvious that it's, it's inappropriate, actually. I believe it's inappropriate. I'll just say it. For Christian parents to be putting their children in public education in this current environment. It's inappropriate. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one to three, the Bible says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you're going over to possess it. So they're on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And Moses is having a conversation with them. He says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. So there's a generational goal here. By keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, And that your days may be long. Now, folks, if you understand the context here, this is a really timely message. So think about this. Israel had spent about four centuries in Egypt being enslaved by pagans. God had miraculously brought them out. They'd spent 40 years sort of prepping and wandering around the wilderness because they still had some obedience issues. And now they're about ready to take possession for the first time in their history of a land that God had assigned to them that they could call their own. Now I want you to just pause there for a moment and fast forward. Fast forward to the time of Judges. Fast forward to the time of the United Kingdom. Fast forward to the time of the divided kingdom. Right through the time of Christ. If you read biblical history, the people of God obeyed him and then fell away. Obeyed him and then fell away. Obeyed him and then fell away. This is the cycle we see from the end of deuteronomy right through the end of malachi and when they fell away it tells us what they fell into the worship of baal the worship of shemoth the worship of foreign gods they didn't go neutral they rejected the true and living god and adopted some pagan worldview and it was always a disaster why because one generation would be faithful maybe two maybe three And then they'd sort of fizzle out, and things would get really bad for a period of time. And then finally there was repentance, and they'd come back. And over and over again, we see this cycle repeated. And I think this is why God, in his foresight, knowing that this would happen, says to them, look, you've heard the truth. You've heard my statutes and my rules. Make sure, make sure that when you enter the promised land, that you teach what I have taught to you to your sons and your son's son. If you lose a generation, you lose the nation. Now, this is a critical message for us today because this is what this is why our country is where it's at. Because three or four generations back, starting in and around the 1950s, Christian parents effectively abandoned a Christian worldview. And then it was, you know, kind of rough through the 60s and You know, the 70s was getting a little wonky and the 80s were getting a little more scary and the 90s were a little, you know, kind of bad. And now it's an absolute disaster because every one of us in this room today, unless you're like 100 years old, has been raised in an anti, maybe a post, a post or an anti-Christian culture in Canada. Canada. And the pollution of secularism, which is not morally neutral. Humanism, which basically says you're the God of your own soul and your own fate. Statism, which says the government is in charge of every aspect of life, including all your fundamental God-given freedoms. Hedonism, which says you should live ultimately for pleasure. Has infected and affected the minds and hearts of tens of thousands of Christians across our country. And so we're in a steep nosedive as people who call ourselves Christians in our country. Well, we've been taught the truth and we now have access to the truth. We have an opportunity to hit the reset button. We're not talking about the great reset we're talking about a reset button that every generation has the opportunity to point their children back to what the Bible calls the statutes and rules of God. Now, I know of many, many Christians that are parents that are hungry for the truth, that serve the Lord, that want to honor the Lord, but frankly, don't seem to put a great deal of effort in to passing on their passion for Christ to their children. that don't seem to be particularly strategic in positioning their children to develop a robust Christian world and life view. Oh, well, we do devotions with our kids at night. But then we send them off to the godless state to educate them during the day, and then we can't figure out Why are children act like hedonists and materialists and humanists and question biblical worldview of human origins? Can't figure it out. It's because we haven't... It's not enough to be passionate about Christ. You have to actually instruct, teach, disciple your children to think and act Christianly. I'm sure many of you have dreams for your children. We have dreams for our own children. Those dreams might include them being healthy. We want our kids to be healthy. We want our kids to do well in school. If you're an athletic family, you want your kids to excel on the rink or on the ball diamond. If you're a musical family, you might want your kids to excel in music. You want them to find a good career. You've probably prayed that your child will marry someone that you like, <laughs> that likes you. We have these goals for our children, but many of those goals are are temporal goals. They're just momentary goals. They're just goals that you know affect life in the here and now. It's really critical that we we do not make the mistake, and I mentioned this earlier, in just focusing in on feeding them, clothing them, educating them, and getting them married. We have to teach them to think Christianly. Some tips that I would offer to you to help you to develop these skills as a parent would include not only being open to constructive criticism as a parent, but also being willing to constructively criticize the decisions and choices and perspective of your children. Now, For some of you, that's gonna be easier than for others because some people lean more heavily into grace, mercy, sort of passivity. It's like, I don't wanna offend my child, but it is an important important child-rearing technique to sit a child down and say, look, I love you, and there's many things you're great at, and, and name them, but in this area, you have failed. You need to clean up your act. You need to stop acting this way or speaking this way. And it could be any any number of areas. But it's important for your children to hear you verbalize the truth, folks. To actually say it with your mouth, with your lips. To actually hear you offer them constructive criticism. And then also to allow other parents to speak into your life. Because you may not see it. We all have blind spots. You may be too passive, you may be too aggressive, you may be too hands-on, you may be too hands-off, you may lack priorities. I I always remember being told when I was younger, like especially when Susie and I got married, we got married pretty young, don't make the mistake as a young couple of just having young couple friends. Make sure that you develop friends that are much older than you and watch them and observe how they're raising their kids or how they're conducting themselves in marriage. And be open to allowing them to offer you advice and constructive criticism. It's really, really critical for us to have the humility to be able to do that. Secondly, as I've already mentioned, take full responsibility for their education. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be the person teaching all the subjects. But if you, if you for, for example, offload their daily education to a Christian school or some sort of a homeschooling network... You need to understand this. You are still 100% responsible. You're the principal of your children. You're responsible for that. Vodi Bakum, many of you have read some of his work. He does a great job in, in speaking against critical race theory, for example, in culture today. But he also speaks about the tasks that we have to raise children for Christ. And He makes this interesting statement in one of his books. Here's what he says. We cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. Think about that. You're going to take your precious children that the Lord has entrusted to you and you're going to let them sit in front of someone who potentially hates your God for six hours a day and let them influence and educate your children. Increasingly, we're seeing, it used to be, you know, when I was in school, it's like, well, the, the subject should to be a little careful of, were biological sciences, when they started getting into theories of human origins, we had to be a bit careful about that. And I've said this before. And you know, mom would be like, hey, you know, don't date Christ- girls that aren't Christians. That was an issue. And I don't want to catch in the smoking section. But other than that, you know, history is history and maths, math and physics is physics and chemistry is chemistry. Not anymore. Not anymore. You'd be hard-pressed to get through even a physics class today without cultural Marxism and hedonism and materialism and political correctness somehow leaking into the curriculum. Because all the public education system today has been hijacked has been hijacked by people that do not share your world and life with you. So be really, really careful in the choices that you make for your children. Third tip I would offer is be their parent first and their friend second. Make sure that you have clearly communicated you're in a position of authority. Sometimes parents make the mistake of thinking, well, I don't want to be an authority figure to my child, so I'm just going to be like their friend. Well, I'm going to tell you this. My, my observation is this. The parents that do that often have kids that like them better when they're still under their, own, under their roof. But over time, as they grow older, they like you less because they have no respect for you. They, they don't recall you disciplining them or, or, or training them or teaching them. So in the moment, it's, it's tempting to be a permissive parent. But in the long run, children often disdain permissive parents. That doesn't mean you want to go overboard and constantly be harping on your children's flaws. There needs to be balance. But keep in mind that you are raising your children for Christ, and while they are under your roof, you have authority over them. The more permissive then that you are, the more strained your relationship will often be in the years to come. And, And many of you are probably thinking of situations like that. Maybe you have adult children and In hindsight, you're like, you know, the mistake we made, we were a little too passive. And our relationship is strained. We didn't want to drive them away, so we took the hyper mercy route. And now our relationship's strained, and our child is not living for Christ. You want to be merciful and gracious, of course. But you also want to take full responsibility for guiding and directing them. That's our job as Christian parents. Fourth, we want to protect them from evil, but because we're never going to be able to do that completely, we want to help them process evil. And we do that by teaching them the statutes and rules of God and fueling their consciences by talking about right and wrong. You know, you have have some influence over your children's conscience toward right and wrong. If you see right and wrong or let's say wrong taking place in your extended family or in culture around you and your children never hear you comment on it, chances are their conscience is going to be a little bit stunted. But if they hear you getting angry at evil, righteous anger toward evil and speaking out against wickedness and taking a stand for truth, that shapes the consciousness of your children. So make sure that you're having lots of robust conversations about this. Solomon did this. Solomonic wisdom found in books like Proverbs in Proverbs chapter three, verses one to four. Solomon, of course, made many mistakes. So he parented out of his strengths and out of his weaknesses. Here's what he said. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Not just your mind. It's not just, here's some truth. Here's some truth. Let's just throw truth at it. But he wanted to make sure that the truth he was passing on to his son had embedded itself in the heart had affected the conscience for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart in other words lean in to truth lean into the principles and rules of god so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of the lord and man so god's word here brings peace and prosperity to our lives. We should cherish what we've learned and pass it on deliberately and conscientiously to the next generation. So we have a mandate to multiply. We have a mandate to teach. And here's the final one, a mandate to release. In Genesis chapter two, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one So if you have kids, for some of you, this is good news. And for some of you, it's it's bad news. But there comes a time when they will leave and form their own household. And you'll always be their parent, but you're no longer parenting them. They're a unique household with authority unto themselves. A husband and a wife, when they come together in marriage... They are a unique household unto themselves and the husband is granted authority over the spiritual life and direction of that new household. So if you're getting into those years as we are, where you're starting to raise adult children, three of our children are now married, you have to shift gears. And I'll tell you, full disclosure, it's kind of weird. How do, what does this look like? How, 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 do, I, how do I juggle these the son-in-law, the daughter-in-laws. How do I change the way I communicate or give direction? It's, It's different, it's fun, but you have to shift your mindset. They're responsible for themselves now. I can give some advice, maybe once in a while a tap on the shoulder and say, hey, have you thought about this? But I'm not responsible to make their marriage work. I'm not responsible to raise their kids for them. And I'm not going to make the mistake of interfering in their marriages or their financial decisions. Once they're adults, you release them to form a new household. Now, for some cultures, this is, this is more difficult because there are some cultures within which kids tend to you know, stick around the house and live within the house for, for multiple generations. And So I understand there's cultural differences, but this passage here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is transcultural. It's transcultural. So you can't overplay that. Well, this is, you know, these are cultural differences. No, every parent has a responsibility when their child gets to adulthood, marries and moves out to acknowledge that is a new and distinct household. Advise them, but do not make the mistake of interfering. Emotionally, there might be a temptation to interfere. And no offense to the ladies, but the emotional cord between the mom and their adult children is often a little more obvious than it is between the dad and the children. This is why there's so many mother-in-law jokes, right? (laughs) Because one thing no son-in-law is going to appreciate is interference from his mother-in-law in his marriage or his Child-rearing strategies. So we have to be careful of this. We have to be conscious of this. When you were young, you wouldn't have appreciated it. And now that we're a little, some of us are a little bit older and we have children that are getting married, we need to respect the autonomy of those marriages as well. But fundamentally, as we bring these three together, the mandate to multiply, the mandate to teach, the mandate to release, what we're actually talking about is discipleship. Ultimately, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Christian parenting is about discipleship. When the Lord blesses you with kids, your fundamental task is to nurture them, to teach them the principles and statutes of God, to pray that they might get saved and become children of the living King, and to release them to form a new household that would honor and glorify the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, purely from a strategic perspective, if we actually took this seriously and we thought long-term, imagine the impact we can have on Canadian culture. Imagine that. Let's say you have four kids. Well, then you're creating two more households because they're going to marry four other people potentially. And you've now doubled your efforts, two couples, eight kids, four new households. So every generation, you have an opportunity to potentially double, for some of you, triple. Your influence over culture generationally. And again, it tends to be the more righteous people, the people that believe in God, the people that aren't living for self, the people that see the big picture, that have the greatest number of children. So the exponential influence that we can have over Culture and training our children to think Christianly when it comes to finances, medicine, and art and science and all of life—it's it, we can have a pretty optimistic outlook as to the influence we can have over future generations. The Word of God says in Proverbs 22:6, and I'll—I'll I'll leave you this. This is, of course, not a promise. It's not a promise. The proverbs aren't promises; they're proverbs. They're general statements of wisdom. Generally speaking, if you do A, you get B. That's what the Proverbs are like. In Proverbs 22.6, many of you have heard this, says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So as a principle from God, if we conscientiously dedicate ourselves to Christian parenting strategies, to helping our kids to think Christianly, At the end of the day, we get kids that are more likely to be Christians. And if that happens, we get grandkids that are more likely to be Christians. And then great-grandchildren that are more likely to be Christians that can bring blessing and joy to a very dark and weary world. Those of you that have not been blessed with children, no problem. There's lots of people around here that could use your help. They could use your prayer. They could use your babysitting services. (laughs) They could benefit from having you teach and instruct their children in our Harvest Kids, in our youth groups. All of us together can be a blessing to the next generation as we see the children that God has entrusted to us as opportunities to disciple a new generation for Christ, living under his lordship, under his rule for his honor and glory alone.